Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Amen. You can be seated this morning. good to hear your voices since I was talking with um, a friend this week about worship and those commands in the scriptures to encourage one another <laughs> and through songs and hymns and spiritual songs and how important it is to hear one another sing, <laughs> to hear one another lift up these truths, lift up the glory of the Lord. And so it's just a blessing to hear you all sing doesn't matter if you think you're good or not. It's a blessing to, to hear one another sing. So, so um, this morning, you might notice that we're taking a little bit of a, a break from John. That's my plan to do that every so often as we go through the gospel. We've gone through four chapters. Hopefully it's been fruitful for you. Um, so we're about 20% of the way through John's gospel. And... Um, done over 20 sermons on the Gospel of John. So it's good every once in a while to take a break and and not take a break from preaching the Gospel, but take a break from John. And this topic has been on my heart a lot in the last couple months, this idea of the law of God and how the law and the Gospel. So the law of God and the Gospel of God, how do those things interconnect? Are they connected? <laughs> Are they contrasting? Do they fit together? Should we separate them? And what does this have to do with our Christian life, right? Um, maybe you don't think about the law frequently. Maybe you don't think about how it applies to your life. But it does. <laughs> the law of God applies to every person's life, whether they believe it or not. And it's really... Um, a big part of our Christian life, this idea of the law and the gospel. And so the plan is over the next three weeks to, to kind of develop and think about the law and the gospel. So this first week we'll look at the law of God or the law of works. Next week we'll look at the gospel of God or the law of faith, as Paul will call it in the book of Romans. And then finally we'll look at both of those together, the law and the gospel. How do they intersect? What is their relationship what is their relevance for the Christian life? How do they affect how we live on a day-to-day -day basis? What, what decisions do we make? Who do we vote for? What, um, what, what controls our daily decisions? I don't know why I thought of that, but there's many other things that affect our lives, our daily lives. And so this idea of law and gospel affects everything that we do as believers, and maybe you don't know what I'm saying yet, but hopefully I can show that to you. <laughs> so, law and gospel, honestly and truthfully, should be proclaimed every week from the pulpit. What do I mean when I say law and gospel? The law is really, in one sense, as we've seen this morning, convicting us of our sin, our need, our shortcomings, our misery, the ways that we've fallen short. The law is this mirror that convicts us of our sin, and the gospel is this great remedy that God has given us in Christ, revealed in the scriptures, for how we can be saved. 
So the law and the gospel should be proclaimed every week, but why are we taking time to focus on these specifically? If you just go on a little thought experiment with me, if I said these are at the heart of the Christian faith, would you believe me? Maybe. Hopefully. But maybe somebody comes up to you, maybe you're talking to someone, maybe it's a coworker. maybe it's a family member, maybe it's someone you meet on the street, and you tell them about Christ, about Jesus, and you say, you need to be saved. Saved from what? Your sins. Well, what is a sin? Well, it's a lack of conformity unto the law of God. Well, which law of God? In the Old Testament, there's laws about shellfish, about not mixing your fabrics. Which laws do I obey? So you, there's the law right there and how it bears on how you would speak to someone. Or maybe someone's coming to you as a Christian and they're saying, I understand my need. How am I to be saved? What do I need to do? Do we tell them a list of things? Do we give them a law to do? Well, in order to be saved, you need to do this, this, and this. You need to pray this many times. You need to have this much of the Bible memorized. You need to go to this kind of school. You need to do this kind of thing. This is how you're saved. It also affects, maybe you tell them, this is what you need to believe. This is the gospel. But part of the gospel is not only believing, but repenting. What do I repent of? What are my sins? What do I turn from? <laughs> you know, all these questions are at the heart of this law-gospel distinction. How am I to be saved? How am I to be sanctified and changed? What am I to do now that I am a Christian? How am I to live? Am I just to pick what, whatever I want to do? If I think it's loving, then it must be. What directs us as Christians? All these things are connected to the law and the gospel. <clears throat> It affects how we live, it affects how we parent, it affects how we interact with our co-workers, it affects how we preach the gospel, it affects how we read our Bibles. All of these things are connected to this law and gospel. So, hopefully we'll see the importance of understanding the law, the importance of understanding the gospel, and how those things fit together and work together to be the entirety of the Christian life and practice. So, um, our text this morning is from Romans. If you want to open up to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 31, it's really going to be a jumping off point for us to talk about these different things. So, we'll actually probably look at this text for the next three weeks, and as we go through it, maybe you'll start to see this threefold structure. Um, there's this book, a famous book, called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. It's written by a man named Edward Fisher. And there's a later, a Puritan came along and put some comments in the book, some footnotes. And he, in this book, it goes through three, these three things. It goes through the law of works, the law of faith, and the law of Christ. And just to give us an idea, maybe these are new concepts, maybe you've never even thought about these things, how the law intersects with the gospel, what is the purpose of the law in the Christian life, does the Christian get rid of the law, 
Is it only applied to the people of Israel in the Old Testament? All these questions are interconnected. This is a long introduction, but I think it's important. Thomas Boston says this. He says, the law of works, you can think about the covenant of works, is the law that is to be done, that one may be saved. So the law of works is do this and live. The law of faith is the law that is to be believed, that one may be saved. This is the covenant of grace, this law of faith. And the law in the hands of Christ is the law of the Savior, binding his saved people to all the duties of obedience. So even in that definition, Thomas Boston is getting at this idea that there's this law that should convict us of our sin. It's this demand that what must be done, we can't do. The law of faith is that which we must believe, the gospel of what Christ has done for sinners. And finally, how are we to live as Christians he calls this the law in the hands of Christ. So we'll talk about all that stuff later, but just to give you a framework for the next couple weeks. So it's interesting, as I was looking at Romans chapter 3, I think you can see this very structure in Romans chapter 3. So read along with me, and maybe we'll see that. So this is the word of the Lord. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one, sorry, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the law and the gospel. We pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. We know that I can talk until I'm blue in the face, 
and I cannot affect one microcosm of change in anyone's heart. It takes a work of the Spirit alone. So this morning, would you, would you work by your word, by your Spirit, to convict us of our sin, to show us the greatness of Christ, and to show us our great need this morning. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So, that was a big introduction, <laughs> right? The law and the gospel. It's, it's, it's vital to how we live as Christians, how we interact with our sin, how we interact with the world around us, how we interact with our neighbor, our fellow believer, and even with society, right? Think about this question. What is right and what is wrong? <laughs> Who gets to decide what is right and what's wrong? To the world, it's the world gets to decide. <laughs> Does society get to decide? Does the majority? If as long as the majority likes it, then it makes it right. Does the king, whoever's in charge, get to decide what's right or wrong? This is the question that we're sort of asking here. What is right, what is wrong, and who gets to decide? Well, as Christians, our answer is God. <laughs> God gets to decide Side, what is right, what is wrong. And ultimately, this is summarized in the law of God. We could call this the moral law. So we're going to look at a couple things this morning. We're going to look at the law of God. We're going to look at the law of works in the garden. And finally, look at the law of works after the fall. So first, before we can go anything, before we can even look at the scriptures and try to understand how the law functions, we have to answer the question, what is the law? What is the law of God? There's actually a lot of different answers that would be correct. Scripture uses this word law in a lot of different ways. This morning, we hear it referenced to talk about all of Scripture. It's re referred to as the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. This is really referring to all of God's special revelation. So that's a correct answer. Sometimes the law is referred to as the first five books of the Bible. The law of Moses, right? It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes the law is referred to as the entire Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi is sometimes referred to as the law. And the New Testament is referred to as the time of the gospel. So there's lots of different ways people use this word. What are we talking about this morning? We're talking about the law in terms of the moral law of God, or we could call it the declared will of God, as one theologian put it. I thought that was a cool way to put it. The declared will of God. How often in your Christian life has somebody come to you and said, I just want to know the will of God in this situation? Maybe you've thought that. I've thought that before. I just want to know the will of God for this situation. And so we have this idea that that somehow God's going to give us the exact plan that he has for the rest of our life. How many kids we're going to have, what, where we should go to college, you know, where should we live, who should we marry, all these things. We have lots of questions, but God doesn't reveal those things to us. But he has revealed something. He has revealed his will, and that is the, God, the law of God. The revealed will of God is the law of God, if that makes sense. So, God has his secret sovereign will. We don't know what's going to happen next. But God has revealed his will for his people. That is the law of God. That is what God requires of his people. 
what he forbids for his people. What pleases God and what displeases God. And this is summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God. So the next question we have to ask is, where does this law come from? Because as I said, society, people in the world, yeah, they might be familiar with the Ten Commandments. It sounds like a generally good way to live. I probably shouldn't kill people. I probably should tell the truth, right? That's how people think about the law. But that's because they don't understand where it comes from, what its origin is. So often the law of God is just thought of to be, well, Moses wrote it down. So, if I don't think Moses is important, then I won't think this law is important. But we know that the law of God, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, comes from the holy, just, and righteous nature of God. The very character of God is revealed in the Ten Commandments. That God is to be worshipped, that the truth is to be told, that we're to be faithful to our spouses. All these different things reveal the holy, just, and righteous character and nature of God. So the law of God is not something, shouldn't be separated from the person of God. Does that make sense? So the law of God comes from the nature and character of God. So the Ten Commandments are not an arbitrary list of things that someone just decided to write down because they sounded like a good moral code. It's interesting because if you're familiar with, I think it's Hammurabi's code, in the ancient Near East, there was a lot of other laws that are very similar in sometimes, like, you know, don't murder, don't, you know, lie. But these are universal. Why? Because they're founded on the very nature and character of God, and they come from His, His holiness, really. Sorry, I got a little bit ahead of myself there. So they come from God, and that also means that they cannot be changed or altered. They cannot be changed or altered. If they are coming from God, who He is, they cannot be changed or altered. No amount of time, no amount of societal shift can change what is right and what is wrong. <laughs> Which is amazing to think about, as I sort of touched on. No majority rule can overthrow the moral law of God. I've seen videos of people that would say, if enough people thought in the world that the Holocaust was a good thing, it would be therefore a moral thing. They, they're forced to say that because they're forced to think that, well, Morality is just really based on what everybody around you thinks. And so if everybody thinks something is right, then it must be right. It has to be right. There's no objective standard. And so they're forced to say things like the Holocaust could be just. It could be good if enough people thought it was good. Murdering millions of people could be good. It's, it's insane, <laughs> right? But, but that's what we're, we're, we're talking about here is that the law of God comes from the nature of God, therefore it cannot be changed or altered. And we have to ask one more question in this section. If that's true, if the law of God is the declared will of God for his people, it comes from his nature and character, and it cannot be changed or altered, 
Where does this law come from? Where does it begin? And who is under this law? Who's under this law? And where does it begin? And that's where we come to the garden. So most people would say, if you ask someone on the street, where does the law of God begin? They would say, Exodus 20. They'd go to Exodus 20, they'd say, right here, this is where the law began. So it was sort of invented out of thin air, and Moses wrote this down, or God wrote it down maybe, but the law begins here. And it ends with the people of Israel. So the law doesn't apply to anybody that's not an Israelite. If you're not from Israel, if you're not from Abraham, the law does not apply to you. But Scripture tells us that the law came before Exodus. It actually came before the law was written down in Exodus. It came in the book of Genesis, in the garden. We read in the book of Romans that the law is written on every human heart. That because the law comes from God, it's universal, it applies to everyone, it binds everyone, the law of God, the moral law of God, was written in the heart of man in Adam. That because Adam was made in the image of God, in true righteousness and holiness, he had the law, the Ten Commandments, written on his heart. Which is sort of interesting to think about if you've never thought about that, right? When, so, okay, let's just assume that we thought that the law started in the book of Exodus, right? When Cain killed his brother, Abel, was it wrong? <laughs> there was no law saying, you shall not murder. Maybe it was right, maybe it wasn't. That's what people are led to think. So, the law of God began before Exodus, it began in the garden, because the law of God is written on all image bearers of God. All image bearers of God have the law of God written in their heart. Everyone in the world has a general sense of what is right and wrong. Obviously, since the fall, this has been corrupted, but we have a sense of what is right and wrong. If you have a kid, <laughs> they might not know exactly that what they're doing is wrong, but you'll see them sort of look behind their shoulder <laughs> when they know that what they're about to do is, it feels wrong. Their conscience is condemning them. It's telling them that what I'm about to do is not right. So what's the big deal? What's, what, what's, what are we talking about here? In the garden... Adam was created in the image of God, perfect. There was no sin. There was no corruption. There was no death. There was no destruction. As the children of catechism says, he was created holy and happy. <laughs> he was in perfect communion with God. There was no sin. And so this law of God that was written on his heart was, it was, it was not clouded by sin, by destruction, there was no sin in the garden. But as we've talked about before, this law of God, these Ten Commandments, were given to Adam as a covenant of works. Maybe you've heard me use that language before. They were given as a covenant of works. This binding agreement that Adam, it was not just this law that Adam could obey or could not obey. It wasn't just something that was on Adam's heart, but he could choose whether he wanted to do it or not. No, 
It was written on his heart, and it was covenanted that Adam was to obey God. It was a binding agreement that Adam was to trust the Lord, trust his creator, serve him, and follow his law perfectly. Never failing, he was to obey the law of God perfectly. And then there's these agreements that God, or these sanctions that God um, connects with this obedience, that if Adam was to obey, he would be rewarded with eternal life. This was symbolized with the tree of life. That if Adam obeyed, if he obeyed God perfectly, he would eat of the tree of life. But if he disobeyed, there would be death and curse and destruction. So we can summarize this law given as a covenant with Adam needed to do this and live. If he did what God said, he would have eternal life. He would live forever with him. He would live in a state where he could not sin if he obeyed. Do this and live. But we know that Adam did not. Adam did not obey the Lord. He did not obey the law. He sinned. That the, the serpent tempted Eve, and through all these different ways we could talk about, but tempted Eve to doubt God's word, to doubt God's law, did God really say, you won't die? These are all ways of undermining God's word and God's law. And ultimately, it led to Adam and Eve eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, breaking this covenant of works, and being bound to sin and death and curse. And it's so easy for us to sort of read this passage in Genesis, maybe you've read it recently, and think about it, you know, they messed up. And even the way it's translated in most of our Bibles, I think leads to some of this, this um, misunderstanding that it's, you know, God was not really that mad. It wasn't a big deal. They sinned. They ate the tree. But maybe they'll get a do-over. One theologian points out this in Genesis 3, verse 8. Many of us might be familiar with this. It's after they've sinned. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. And it says in verse 8 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and the ESV says, in the cool of the day. And so it can sound like God's just on this nice stroll. It was the cool of the day, maybe a day like today. It's just the cool of the day. And, oh, you, you know, they're trying to hide themselves. And God's just, he's not really that mad. But one theologian points out that this word that's the, he, the Hebrew word for cool there could also be translated wind or spirit. So if we read it again, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the spirit of the day. What does that mean? <laughs> the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and in the New Testament it refers exclusively to the day of judgment. The day of judgment. That if, and I believe this is what the text is saying, that if the Lord was walking in the spirit of the day, it's saying, the Lord is coming to judge. This is the final judgment, <laughs> that God is coming to judge them. They have broken the covenant of works. This was not just a, oh, they ate the fruit they weren't supposed to. They are usurping 
the triune God. They're saying our way is better. Our law is better. What we think is right should be right. We're going to call evil good and good evil. And God is coming in judgment to judge them. They had broken his holy and just law. And they are condemned. And so this law that was supposed to be the means by which they would receive eternal life is now the very thing that condemns them. They were to obey the law. They were to follow the Lord. They were to trust him and serve him, love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, love their neighbor. Now this law condemns them. It only brings condemnation. It says to them, you have fallen short of the glory of God. And so, as we know, this fall in the garden in Genesis 3 brought a loss of righteousness. They are now sinners, loss of their communion with God. They're under God's wrath and curse. They're dead in their sins, defiled in body and soul, as our confession says. This is the effects of the fall. So, this is what we call the covenant of works, the law of works. That Adam was to do this and live, and he did not. And he thrust all of humanity into sin and destruction. And so we know that shortly after this, in Genesis 3.15, God will make this promise of the covenant of grace that this seed of the serpent, or the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We'll talk about that more last week. But so often we think in our minds, well, yes, Adam broke God's law. It was wrong. But maybe if he just had a do-over. Maybe if Adam just got a second chance to retry. Even in his fallen condition. And as one theologian put it, the answer is no. Because now he's in a double debt. Not only does he have to fulfill perfect righteousness, but he has to pay for the sin that he committed. His usurping God's authority. His going against God's law. He's in a double debt. He has to not only pay perfect righteousness, but pay for his sin. And so we know that even though this covenant of works was broken, Adam and Eve broke this covenant, it's still binding on all people. That the moral law of God binds all of us. On the judgment day, someone goes, a sinner goes before the Lord on that day of judgment, and they say, you're, you're in sin, you're under judgment. And they're going to say, what did I do wrong? <laughs> What's going to be held up is not some arbitrary, cultural, appropriate law, but the law of God. The Ten Commandments, you fell short, you did not love the Lord your God, you did not serve Him, you did not obey His commands, therefore you will be judged. So all people at all times, whether you're born in Israel or born in America, all people are born under this law as a covenant of works. Perfect obedience is required to dwell with God, and man is incapable of doing that because of the fall. We know this intimately. You and I know this. When we sin, we are <laughs> proclaiming, whether we realize it or not, that we are incapable of perfectly obeying God's law. And we see this really portrayed through the rest of the Old Testament. I won't go into all of it today, but 
even Israel is a picture of what Adam was supposed to do. They are both called sons of God. Adam is called a son of God. Israel is called a son of God. They're both placed in a holy land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> They're both required to obey God's law in order to remain in God's land. They're both exiled when they fail to, break, to, to obey God's law. So God is showing us through the people of Israel that even people that are put in this perfect garden paradise cannot obey the law of God perfectly. They cannot obey, even for temporal blessings in the land, they can't. Man is unable to perfectly obey this law of God. And so, this can leave us with a, a big problem, right? If we were just to stay here, we would be in trouble. God created man perfect. He gave him a law to obey. He gave him every good thing that Adam power to obey it, and Adam did not. And so he thrust us all into sin and, and destruction, and we can't keep the law. Our, our consciences convict us every day that we cannot keep this law. The scriptures reveal to us that we cannot keep this law. We are all under this covenant of works. We are born under it. We have to obey it, and we can't. We are all born in Adam, as the scripture says, to perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. Perfect obedience is required to stand before God on the day of judgment. Not just 99%, not just doing more good than your neighbor, but perfect obedience is required. And this is a problem for us <laughs> because we are sinners. As we read this morning, every mouth is stopped. No one can come before the Lord and say, I did enough. I helped enough homeless people. I walked this old lady across the street. Nobody can say that. Every mouth is stopped. We are all born under this law, and it can't save us. The law, as good as it is, it doesn't give us power to obey it. The law demands. It says, you must. But it doesn't give us power to do. It just says, do. It can't give us power to do. In the Marrow of Modern Divinity, Fisher will say this, The nature and office of the law is to show us our sin, our condemnation, and our death. This is the purpose of the law. In our fallen state, it shows us how short we fall. It shows us our condemnation and what our sin deserves, which is death. This is the nature and office of the law. And that's why we need not only the law, but the gospel. <laughs> the law kills, but the Spirit gives life, is what Paul will later go on to say. And Fisher says this, The nature and office of the gospel is to show us that Christ has taken away our sin, and that he also is our redemption and our life. So we, we see the law, we see how far we short, how short we fall, and we need something besides the law. We need the gospel. 
which is what? What is the gospel? What is our hope? We can't obey the law. We can't do it. The gospel is Christ has done it. Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has taken the curse that we deserve. Christ has obeyed where Adam failed, where we fail. He's taken the punishment that we deserved, and he has secured perfect righteousness. And I just wanted to read a couple passages this morning. So you don't have to turn there. I just want us to listen to how the New Testament talks about the gospel and how it's vitally connected to the law. It's vitally connected to the law. We read in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, saying, If you try to be made right with God by obeying the law, you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What's Paul saying there? The law, everyone who tries to be made right with God by obeying the law is cursed. But Christ came and took the curse that we deserved. He'll say in Ephesians chapter 2, You who were dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy by the great love with which he loved us, has saved us, not by works done by us, but according to the work of Christ. We see in, in Titus chapter 3, this similar language. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That this is what Christ has done. It's not something other than the law, it's the law obeyed for us by the person of Christ, fulfilled in our place, so that we might be made right. And so my encouragement to us this morning, I'll close with this, is to not go back to the law as a covenant of works. The covenant of works says, do this and live. Everyone is under it. Believers have been freed from it. As we read this morning, Christ came and freed us from the law as a covenant of works. And it's so easy for us to go back to the law. Most of the book of Galatians is Paul begging the people to not go back to the law as a covenant of works. He says in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
He's saying, you've been saved by grace. Do you think that your flesh can now keep you to the last day? He'll say more things in chapters 3 through 5. But we're all prone in our heart of hearts to either legalism or licentiousness. To either, you know, neonomianism or antinomianism. To add to God's law or to take away from God's law. We're all legalists in our hearts. How do we do that? We make laws around the things that we're good at. If we're good at things, we make laws around those, and then we bind other people to obey those laws. And they become good or bad Christians, whether they do those things that we like or not. <laughs> Maybe we're really good at praying. <laughs> and so we say, in order to be a good Christian, you need to pray this many hours a day. Prayer is a good thing. We should pray. We should probably pray more. But we start judging whether someone's a good or bad Christian based on this legalistic law that we've made. Maybe it's daily devotions. Maybe it's where our kids go to school. Maybe it's who we vote for. Maybe it's where we go to college. All these things, we have legalistic tendencies to say, you must do this thing that I think is right. And it's not found in the law of God. It's not found in the scriptures. It's a man-made law. And yeah, we should use wisdom. <laughs> we should use wisdom on who we vote for, where we send our kids to school. We should be wise with how these, we do these things. But we're all prone to add to God's law in this way to put ourselves under a covenant of works where in order to be a good Christian, you need to do this thing. And we're also prone to reject God's law in some ways and say it's not important. This is called antinomianism or licentiousness where we excuse the sins that we struggle with. We know the sins that we struggle with and so we can excuse those, right? And this is the things that we say. I'm not proud. I'm just confident. <laughs> right? I'm not proud. I don't struggle with pride. I'm just, I'm just confident in who I am. We excuse the sin of pride. Or maybe we say something like this. I'm not a gossip. I just need to know what's going on so I can pray for people better. <laughs> right? We excuse the sin of gossip. Maybe we say things like this. You know, how I interact with my coworkers or on social media. I'm not rude or hateful. I just have to stand up for the truth. <laughs> Right? And, and we excuse our tendency to be hateful to our neighbor. And it's important to stand up for the truth, but we should never do that in a way that's hateful or unloving. And so all these things we do, we downplay God's law. And we create this new law, in a sense, where, you know, how, how frequently we're praying, how frequently we're doing these daily devotions what we look like, it more becomes about socially and what we look like, and we become organized around these different things. Some people like doing this, so let's form a church around this. Some people like doing that, let's form a church around that. And the gospel becomes, are you doing this list of things that are found nowhere in the scripture, and that becomes the gospel. And it's so important to understand this idea of the law of the covenant of works because it sounds so contradictory. 
How can understanding the covenant of works help us understand God's grace? One theologian said, what we don't see in the front door, we let in the back door. What do I mean? I'm sorry I'm going on long, but if we don't understand the work that Adam was supposed to do, this perfect obedience that he was supposed to obey, if we don't understand that, if we reject that, if we say God is always gracious, if we reject what Adam was in the garden, we fail to see what Christ did for us in the gospel. Adam was required to have perfect obedience, to obey the law of God perfectly. That is what Christ did for us. He obeyed the law perfectly. And so if you look at this definition of justification that we have in our liturgy, it says it's an act of God's free grace where he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous. Because we're righteous? No. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. What does that mean? On the day of judgment, when we stand before the Lord, are we going to come to the Lord and say, look at what I've done? Even as a believer, are we going to say, look at what I did? Look, here's my works. We're going to say, no, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is found in the righteousness of Christ alone for sinners like us. And so if we reject this covenant of works, this law of God, we end up bringing in these, all these little new laws. We add to God's law. We make it seem like this is how you need to live the Christian life. It's so important that we understand that and that we don't go back to the law. Christ has set us free. For freedom you've been set free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, is what Paul says. Let's not submit to a yoke of slavery. Let's run to Christ. Let's look to Him for justification, for righteousness. Let's examine ourselves and see where we've fallen short of God's law. Let's not add to God's law. Let's not bind people to laws that we've made up, man-made laws. Let's allow the conscience to convict where God's law does not speak. And let's examine the, the plank in our own eye before we examine the speck in our neighbor's eye. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. And if we're honest this morning, our mouths are stopped. As it said in Romans 3, every mouth is stopped. None of us can come to you and say, we've done enough. We're good enough. We were born into the right family. We did enough. None of us can say that. And so this morning, it can, be, it can be a weighty thing to hear the law of God proclaimed because it crushes us. It shows us, it flattens us. It shows us that there's no hope of salvation by our obedience. And that is why we need the gospel. We need the gospel of Christ, that Christ has come, taken on flesh, paid for our sins on the cross, suffered the punishment that we deserved, and at every point fulfilled the law of God, was tempted as Adam was, was tempted as Israel was, and yet passed and succeeded where we cannot, where we will not, where we fail every day. Help us this morning to look to Christ, to trust in Him, and may our hope be built on Him alone. 
for justification, for right standing with God. Help us to not go back to the law as a covenant of works, but obey the law out of gratitude, uphold the law, not to earn anything from you, but because of what you've done for us in the gospel, Lord. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.